Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the privilege we have to come and study your word. I pray that you would organize my thoughts, that you would put your words in my mouth. Uh, You'd help me to just wholly rely upon you, to trust in you, and to let you um, speak to each of us individually and personally, even to myself. Take the verses that we read, take the inspired references that we look at, and impact us, Lord. Take your word and change us. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Today's presentation is entitled, The Intention of Scripture, The Devotional Life of the Remnant. The Intention of Scripture, The Devotional Life of the Remnant. Now before I dive in, I want to kind of give a principle, a concept, a thought that I think is important. And I actually learned this in school uh, this week, actually, so it's kind of interesting. I was in class, uh, my math class, and the teacher was covering something, something that I actually already knew. Have you ever had that happen when a teacher presents on something you already actually know? So what do you do when a teacher starts talking about something that you already know? I grab my little AirPod, I slip the AirPod into my right ear, I double-tapped it so it resumed the playlist, <laughs> I pulled out the iPad, swiped it over off of the, the note section onto another section, and I was working on something totally unrelated to that particular class. And I should have known better, right? Because I'm about to tell you something that I should have known that, that day. I also have found that we don't just do that in a, like a secular setting, but we do that in a spiritual setting all the time. And I noticed this at an evangelistic series when I was sitting there, and I preach evangelistic campaigns. And the preacher started, uh, he gave the title, he gave his introdu- uh, introductory story, and I knew where he was going already. I could have probably told you the verses before he used the verses. And when that happens, what happens to our brains? They immediately check out, right? And they start thinking about what's for dinner or how, how, long, how much bad traffic going to be on the way home from this meeting, um, whatever we think about when we're checked out. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, our introduc- introductory text, kind of unrelated, more of just a foundation so that we don't check out. The Bible says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing. Amen? So if you think that, as we're going to talk about the devotional life and the intention of Scripture, like, I know the purpose of the Bible, and of course I have devotions. And immediately your brain is already beginning to think about potluck and what church service you're going to go to next and who's going to have the best potluck or whatever it is that we think about on Sabbath when we check out. Uh, Don't check out. Amen. Because if you thought you knew something, that was evidence you know nothing, as you should know it. And therefore, you should pay very close attention because you may learn something new. Amen. Or you just might be reminded of something that God knows that you need, or else why would he have allowed you to be here today? So I believe God has a a special, particular blessing for each person when they come. And I know God has something for you today as we dive in. So I hope that helps you to to kind of harness the the power of the mind as we dive in. We're going to look at the intention of the Bible um, in uh, Scripture in three points. Number one, we're going to look at the purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible. Why did God give the Bible? And you are free to totally disagree with me. I am but a man and can err, but I will share with you things that I have studied and conclusions that I have come to on why I believe, uh, big picture, why God gave us the Bible. Number two, we're going to look at the practical impact of understanding that purpose. Because when you understand why God gave the Bible, you can maximize his intention. Amen? You can maximize the purpose. I mean, if God gave this for reason A, but you're using it for reason, reason B, you're missing out on what God intended. Does that make sense? 
And you may be getting something good, but you're not maximizing. So we're going to talk about that, with the practical impact of this purpose. And then point three kind of sounds like it makes no sense, but we'll get there. Uh, we're going to look at the other half of God's character. And that would just be point three. We'll get there when we get there. Okay, so let's dive into point number one. What is the purpose of the Bible? We all have unique backgrounds, and I'm no different. I'm a convert from being an atheist, from a secular background, one who didn't believe in God, who wasn't a practicing, uh, practicing any religion of any sorts. And so for me, when I first became a Christian, I had my understanding of the purpose of the Bible based on my experience and background. Does that make sense? I think we do this all the time. First two verses I ever read in Scripture were Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. The very first verses I ever read for myself. The Bible says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And this was proposed to me as God's claim to his existence. And verse 10 was his evidence, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And the New Testament rendition of that concept, I believe, is found in John 14, 29, also on the screen. It says, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you might believe. So if you were to ask me, as a young Christian, what is the purpose of the Bible, I would have gave you a threefold answer based on these passages right here. Number one, to prove the existence of God. To prove the existence of God. Number two, to show the reliability of his word. You can trust the Bible. And number three, to show I'm right. What? To show I'm right. In other words, to show what is right and what is wrong. And obviously, because I'm studying it, I'm what? I'm right. You know we all do that, amen? That's why you're all smiling. So it's three points. For me, in my mind as a young Christian, number one, I can show God exists. Number two, reliability of the Bible through the prophetic word. And number three, to show what is right and what is wrong and that the things that I now believe are, they're right. And this was kind of my big picture view of the Bible. Ah, so this was kind of my, my understanding of the Bible. And I took a great delight in actually utilizing these three concepts in um, friendly, cordial debating of individuals to try to go over what's right and what's wrong according to the scripture. And for the better part of two years, this is how I viewed the Bible as a young Christian. This is how I understood it. This is why I studied it. Does that make sense? I studied the Bible eight hours a day for two years with that premise in mind, that this is why I'm studying the Bible. I'm studying the Bible. I'm dedicating two years of my life so that I can, one, show God clearly exists. Number two, show that the Bible is reliable um, more than you can imagine. And number three, to show what is right versus, obviously, what is wrong. Well, after studying the Bible for a couple years and growing in the Christian faith, I eventually came across a concept that changed how I study my Bible. And it's found in John 5.39. Jesus says something here that everyone in this room probably has heard. You've probably read it. But I'm going to challenge us today to actually apply this concept. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, speaking to some Pharisees, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, Jesus speaking. 
Here Jesus gives us a concept, a principle that you cannot miss. And notice, he doesn't say but. I actually used to hear people quote this verse all the time and say but instead of the word and. And that actually changes the meaning of the verse, doesn't it? Because in the scriptures, can you find the source of eternal life? Yes or no? You can because they testify of who? Jesus, right? And is Jesus the source of life? Amen? But their focus was wrong. And so here Jesus is saying, look, your focus is wrong. The scriptures really talk about who? Me. Which scriptures? Are you sure all of them? So even the Old Testament? Huh. Even the book of Leviticus? Even the book of Numbers? Deuteronomy? What about the kings? They all testify of Jesus? I don't see his name in there. Are you sure? They do. They do. You see, the unfolding, every story in the Bible, every verse in Scripture, every concept that God gives us is centered around Jesus. It is the unfolding of the plan of redemption. In every story, yes, every story, every passage, every Scripture, and this was the intention, I believe, of why God gave Scripture. Jesus said it himself. These testify of... Me. There it is right there. That is the intention of Scripture. Yes, it's true that it shows that God exists. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 is clear. But again, we're going to see that even that concept is only a revelation of God's character, who He is. Amen? Let's continue. So, okay, so every story is about Jesus, but what does that mean? What's significant about that? It says here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I want to talk about this verse, this passage for a minute. It says here, describing the God of this world, that's a, a reference to Satan. It says that he does something to the people. What does he do to the minds of people? What does he do to their minds? Yeah, he blinds them, right? And this is interesting. A book that I really enjoy, The Great Controversy, tells us uh, Satan's kind of battle plan, his strategic battle plan is to keep us in darkness and in penitence until the Savior's mediation has ended. And there's no more sacrifice for sin. I'll say that again. His plan is to keep you in darkness and in penitence. What's that word? Indifference. In other words, Satan's goal isn't to make you really, really evil. He's just gonna, he just wants to blind you. That's it. If he, he, if he can just blind you, he has you. And it says here that he blinds the minds of unbelievers from what? from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So God is trying desperately to get this light to us. Satan is trying desperately to do what to us? To blind us. And notice this. It's not that he's been trying to blind us from reading the Bible. He quotes the Bible, does he not? I don't think he's even trying to blind you from reading the Bible. I believe he's blinding you from God's intention of the Bible. Because then you miss out. It goes on to say in verse 6, Hmm. 
here is the patience of the saints. Amen. All right. It says here in verse 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this carefully, because remember, all Scripture testifies of who? Of Christ, of Jesus. That's right. And it says here that the same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness in creation has done something spectacular. It says that he has shown in our hearts to give, notice this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of? Yeah. So if you're not beholding the face of Jesus, are you beholding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? You're not. So if you're reading scripture and in scripture you're not seeing the face of Jesus, you're actually reading scripture and not beholding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Is it possible to read the Bible and yet still dwell in darkness? I'm going to suggest you the answer is yes. It's when we allow Satan to distract our minds from God's intention of scripture to reveal Jesus to us. Amen? When we lose that, we lose everything. Yeah, you might be right, but you can be lost and right at the same time, can you not? And so it's very interesting to me how God is trying desperately to get us to see him. That he wants to cause this light in a dark world, as he caused the light in the, in the dark world to shine forth, he wants to cause this experience to happen in our hearts, but it happens through seeing Jesus. And it specifically said, a knowledge of the glory of God. You see, through beholding Jesus, we come to know God. Now, I'm not going to preach on what it means to know God. I've actually preached two separate sermons on that last few times I was here on what it means to know God. So if you've never heard this concept of knowing God, I'm going to suggest you go to Audioverse. A little plug there for Audioverse, right? Go to Audioverse. Is it .com? .com? .org. That's right, .org. Audioverse.org. It's saved on my browser. Um, Audioverse.org. Download it. Listen to it. I'll give a one-slide summary of it. But the intention of seeing Jesus is so that you can know God. But what does it mean to know God? I'm just going to be quoting here from um, a Greek lexicon on the word to know found in John 17, verse 3. And it says here that it involves personal involvement and experience. It's describing an interpersonal relationship that an individual experiences. See, sometimes when we hear you need to know God, what our brains hear is you need to know about God. Let me illustrate the difference. If I say, and I think I did something similar last time I was here, if I say that I know the fire is hot, what does that actually mean? It can mean two different things, right? It can mean I know the fire is hot because someone told me it's hot, correct? Would it still be a true statement? Yeah, it'd still be a true statement. Or it can be, I know the fire is hot because I once fell in fire. That actually happened to me when I was young. And I found out fire is hot. It's still the same sentence. I know the fire is hot, but two completely different meanings. The same thing happens in the New Testament and the Old Testament of the Bible. There are different words for the word know. And to know God isn't the word to know as in someone told you about him. It's the word to know as if you fell into the fire yourself. You see, God wants you to know Him through experience, through experiencing Him, through having an actual interaction with Him. And this can only happen if you're beholding the face of Jesus. 
If you're missing the face of Jesus, you're missing the experience that God intends for you to have. If you're missing that, you're missing everything. And Satan, he wins in the end because he keeps us in darkness and indifference through this. Let's continue. John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. Uh, Notice what it says here. John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. It says, Philip said to him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Again, through seeing Jesus, who are you seeing? You are seeing the Father. Through interacting with Jesus, who are you interacting with? Interacting with the Father. By getting to know Jesus, who are you getting to know? The Father. This is why it is so important to understand that the burden of every passage isn't so that you can prove that you're right versus who's wrong, but the burden of every passage is so that you can see and get to know who? Jesus. This is of the utmost importance when it comes to studying the Bible. And this is what I believe is God's intention of Genesis to Revelation is every story in every passage gives you a different type of experience with God. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the end, what that could look like practically. All right, point number two, the practical impact. The practical impact. I wonder if I do it this way. Yeah, we'll do it that way. Okay, the practical impact. Uh, Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. What happens if we study the Bible this way and get to know God as it is our privilege to know Him? Psalm chapter 9, uh, verse 10. The Bible says here, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, I want you to notice this. It says that this is it's describing a group of people who put their trust in God. How many of you want to trust God more? Right? I'm sure many of us have said a prayer in, to that extent. God, help me trust you more. Help me to trust you more. And I read this verse one day and I realized I think I'm asking God for the wrong thing. Because it tells us who trusts him. Who trusts him? Those who know him. And I thought back to my, my life before being a Christian, that, makes, that made a lot of sense back where I came from. You only trust people that you knew really well, right? And I'm sure it is even when you're a Christian. It should be the same. Uh, but I'm thinking in a different context. But you really don't trust people with your life unless you, unless you know them well enough that you know they're not going to let you down, right? Here it says that those who know your name or your character put their trust in you. You see, when you study the Bible with the intention of seeing Jesus, and experiencing God and knowing God in every story, in every passage, what actually happens is your trust in Him will actually increase. So, for everyone who raised their hand that you want to trust Him more, what you're really saying is you need to get to know Him more. That there's something about Him, there's a level of a depth of knowing of Him that you do not have that actually holds you back from putting it all in His hands. Because at the end of the day, why don't we put our finances fully in His hands? Because we don't know how well he'll manage it for us. We don't. We don't know him well enough to trust that he really does have it in his hands. Amen? 
Or why don't we trust them with our um, academic pursuits sometimes? It's like, okay, God, I see you're leading this way, but no, I, I'm going to do it this way. Why do we think that we know better than God? It's because we don't know him well enough to fully trust him. And I can imagine the broken heart of God looking at us saying, oh, you don't trust me? Oh, you haven't gotten to know me well enough yet. Because if you knew me, you would know you can trust me. Look, when we study this way, our trust in God ah, yes, will increase. Our trust in God will increase. My trust is increasing right now. Amen. <laughs> All right. What happens as our trust in God continues to increase? Notice this. Isaiah 23, 26 verse 3. We're going to look at promises in the Bible that I think we skip the conditions of these promises and wonder why we don't have the experience. Isaiah 26, 3, one of my favorite verses to send people on finals week. It's one I'm going to be meditating on a lot next week. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, speaking to, uh, about God, describing him, you will keep him in what kind of peace? Perfect peace. How many of you could use some perfect peace? Right? Now, is that a promise in God's word? Yes or no? Does God lie? No. So should that become reality? How come we don't have perfect peace then? Is that a fair question? Notice what the verse says. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, but why? Because he what? Ooh, so why don't we have perfect peace? We don't trust him. And, and that's what causes the concern. That's what causes the uneasiness. That's what causes the, the worry and the anxiety is we actually don't trust him. But why don't we trust him? Because we don't, we don't know him. Why don't we know him the way we should know him? Because our minds were blinded when we looked at scripture. We looked at it with the wrong purpose and intention and we missed the experience that God wanted us to have that would have given us and resulted in perfect peace. Isn't that interesting? Let's continue. What happens when you experience perfect peace? Oh, let's uh, actually let's look at this. With perfect peace. Perfect peace does not mean no problems. I want to clarify that. The Bible does say in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. I'm sure all of us have had our fair share of tribulation. But through tribulation you can have peace in Christ. Does that make sense? Why? You have a peace because you trust who? You trust God. So regardless of the tribulation, you know it will be okay. Amen, right? You ever look in the mirror and just tell yourself, it will be okay, right? We do that. And there's times when we need to have that reality. Like, look, if you really trust God, you have to understand at the, in the end, it will, be, it will be okay. I like to tell people on this great journey and this great race, it all ends the same, amen? Regardless of what happens between point A and point B, we're all going to the same place, amen? It all ends the same. And we can know in the end, it will all be okay. I'm referencing the second coming by that, by the way. Amen. Amen. So what happens when we have this perfect peace? What, is, what then occurs? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, describes something that is so precious. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4. Here it tells us what experience we can have when we ourselves have experienced the perfect peace of God, the comfort of God in our lives. 
It says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. There it is. We're going to have tribulation, but God comforts us with His perfect peace that it's going to be okay. That we, notice this, may be able to do what? Comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Isn't that beautiful? You see, when you have that perfect peace and that comfort from God through your tribulation, you then in turn can go and comfort someone else. Don't raise your hands, but just think. Have you ever had a difficult time comforting someone? Right? Have you ever had a difficult time? I know I have. Sometimes I feel awkward. It's like, I, I don't know what to do right now. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult, I have found, because when I'm trying to comfort someone in my own mind, I'm like, but I'm going through the same thing. <laughs> like, I need a hug right now. Can you relate with that? And it's, it's, you're trying to comfort them, and you can give them, I don't want to say empty words, but you can give them words. You can give them verses that you yourself are going to go home and weep over yourself, <laughs> which may be God's way of speaking to you, actually. But you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes we struggle so much with speaking genuine, spirit-powered words of comfort to people because we are actually not comforted ourselves. We don't have peace. We're drowning in our tribulation on a daily basis. But why? Because we don't trust Him. Because we don't know Him. Because we were blinded from the purpose and the intent of Scripture. Not right and wrong, but who is God? So what do we do? Well, it means we study for the right purpose. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. This is what God desires, that when we study the Word of God, we gain a knowledge of God. Again, a knowledge of God is not merely simply intellectual, but it is a practical experience as well. I'm going to give some stories, because I feel like sometimes sermons can sound too philosophical, too conceptual, and we don't actually know what to do with them. Does that make sense? Um, like, so go experience God. It's like, hey man, how do I do that? Um, I'm going to share with you how the Bible has become real to me in my personal walk um, through stories. There are times when I read the Bible, and I have realized this, that every story of Scripture, ha- it shows me a couple of things. So I ask three questions so I can get these couple of things. Number one, every story I study I ask the question, what does this show me about God? Because remember, who's, who's in every story? Jesus. Jesus, right? So I'm asking the question, what does the story show me about Jesus? What does it reveal about God? Who is he? What does it show me? It shows me something. Help me to find it. That's more important than anything else. Number two, what does this show me about me? Usually it's in contrast to God. Does that make sense? Like you see God's patience and you're like, yeah, I'm definitely not that patient type type of thing. But what does it show me about me? And number three, what decision do I make based upon what I just learned about who God is and about who I am? I'll give you some examples. Uh, The story of Peter. I love the story of Peter. Anyone love the story of Peter? I think it's a great, fascinating story. I love the story of Peter. Um, I've learned so much from it. It's comforted me and God has shown me himself through it. How? I saw a man who 
on the outside looked like he did have it together. I saw a man who was a follower of Christ, who was a close disciple, one who would go and preach and accomplish great things. I saw one who said, I will even die for Christ. And yet in his great strength, he fell hard. And there are times in my Christian journey as an evangelist, as a literature evangelist, as a Bible teacher, when I have had my shortcomings. And it's in those moments to feel completely forsaken by who? By God. How could I, knowing so much, have fallen so low? Does that make sense? I'm sure someone can relate with that. And when I look at Peter, what does his story show me about God? It shows me that God, even though you think you have it all together and fall so hard, God still draws right by your side. And then guess what God was crazy enough to do? To invite him back into ministry. Amen? That shows me something about God. And if you've ever fallen on your journey and stumbled on the Christian walk, the story of Peter should show you something about God that should comfort your soul. I think of the story of Elijah. Some people go through really tough times in life. They really do. I I know my fair share of tough times. Ellen White says there are people that actually find death preferable to life. And that's a crazy thought to think about. But I know personally what it's like to have gone through so much that you come to a point when you think it through and you think to yourself, man, if I literally just died right now, it really wouldn't be that bad. Guess who else thought that way? Elijah. Elijah literally asked God to kill him. He thought death was preferable to life because anything that could go wrong was going wrong. And there are people who find themselves in those situations and they think themselves, man, I'm so bad. I'm so wrong for thinking this way that how could I even fathom that kind of a concept? There's no way God could love or appreciate me anymore. But guess what God did for Elijah while he was running from God, clinging and hoping that he would just die? God kept feeding him food. Right? God kept sustaining him on his journey. Like you wake up and there's food right there. It's like, oh, I guess I'm not going to die today. You eat and you keep going. <laughs> That's what God did for him. And it, God didn't just like show up and be like, rah, like, no, we got this. God, God's like, okay, like, I understand. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you what you need. In the cave, God showed up in a still small voice. What are you doing here? And he called him back. Amen? You see, if you've ever felt like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong in your life and you just feel like giving up, the story of Elijah should show you something about God that should comfort your soul. Amen? It should give you and you should bring that into an experience for yourself. I remember when I was struggling with finances. Um, Not because I was struggling managing my finances, but something happened that took a lot of my finances. There's a difference, amen. There's a difference. Trust me. All you guys are there like, hmm, he needs to take that financial peace class. No. Uh, it was a catastrophe that happened. Um, and I did not think I was going to make it. I didn't see how the, the last little bit of money was going to actually prov- work. I'm sure someone in this room has been in that situation before. And it seemed like the oil in the meal would never run out. Another reference to the story of Elijah, right? Remember that? When the widow, she says, what does what she, she say? Well, I have a little meal. I have a little oil. I'm going to make a cake. Me and my son are going to eat it. And then we're going we're gonna to die. That's all we got. And Elijah said, well, just make me some bread first. Make me some cake first. What? Like, she did. 
She was obedient. She gave what she had to the Lord, and it never ran out. Regardless of that financial catastrophe, I saw this story. I saw the story, the feeding of the 5,000. I got him and he said, God, this shows me something about you. This shows me something about how you provide. I trust you. I believe that. I'm putting my all in that. And you know what? God has never left me lacking. Amen. You see, every story shows me something about God, how he interacts with people, how he interacts with our situations. And it's, it's comforting. It's, not, it, it's very comforting to me. Every time I learn something new about God, because it shows me who he is. And then I get to bring that into my day-to-day life. Well, if you did that for them, you obviously do that for, yeah, amen. If you love them that much, you love me, you love me that much. That's good to know. Man, if you were patient with that guy, Lord, you got to be patient with me too, right? It's like, but there are two sides of God's character. We're going to close with that in a minute. Okay, so continuing. Jesus summarizes this whole concept in John chapter 6, I believe, that I just ex- talked about for like the last five or six minutes or so. In John 6, 53 to 55, he says something that one day I read and I realized I was missing out on an experience. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 53, the Bible says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, this is one of those verses I consider the class of weird verses. If you're reading the Bible for the first time, remember I came from atheism? I remember I read this for the first time. I actually thought Seventh-day Adventist Christians were cannibals. And I, I remember thinking, I'm down. You know, I was down. I was down. I was like, it's in the Bible. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. I am willing to do whatever the Lord asks. But I was thankful it was not describing cannibalism. But what was it describing? Verse 54, For he who eats the flesh and drinks the blood has what? Ah, oh, eternal life. John 17, verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know you huh so to eat his flesh and drink his blood means it's synonymous with to to know god Hmm. and i will raise him up at the last day how do you want to be in that resurrection with jesus when he resurrects amen i want to be there but you can't be there if you don't what eat the flesh and drink the hmm 55 for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me And I in, I love all the different metaphors going on here in this passage. If I can summarize it in simple form as my time is running out. What Jesus is saying here is that when we, according to John 1.14, the word became flesh. When we eat the flesh, the word of God, it literally needs to come into us and become a part of us. Christ's life. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So to drink the blood means to drink the life of Jesus. He literally wants to come in and to become a part of you. That's what it's describing. If I can say it differently, he's saying, those who experience eternal life are those who know God. Do you know God? Do you have an experience with God? A knowledge of his character and a practical experience with that character. Because it's very different, my friends. It's very different. It's one thing to know God is love. It's another entirely different thing to know that you are incredibly loved by God. Amen? Incredibly different. 
It's one thing to know God forgives sins. It's an entirely different thing to feel the joys of your sins laid down at Calvary. It's entirely different. It's not enough to know about. God is calling you to partake of every story. Find Christ in the story. Find God's character revealed in the story and bring that into a real life experience when you go through your own story. Amen? This is the intention of Scripture. This is why I believe in Romans 15, 4. It says, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we have hope. That's what they were given for, to help us through. Point three, as I wrap this up quickly, the other half of God's character. Often when we talk about getting to know God and His character, we often talk about, the, about one half of His character. Um, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And we talk about kind of this very, um, the goodness of God. I'll put it that way. We talk a, very, a, very, a lot about the goodness of God. But I want to show you a verse that shows there are two aspects of God's character, and I think both should be considered when we study the Bible. It says in Romans eleven twenty two, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Are there two aspects of God's character? Yeah, there is. There is goodness, but there is also severity. And I'm going to tell you this. Severity doesn't mean bad, okay? I want to clarify. Severity doesn't mean bad. There are just two different aspects, and both are good, actually. And we'll come back to this verse in a minute. But let me give you an example. Jude, verse 22 and 23, it says here, and on how many? Some have compassion. First time I read that, I was confused. I was like, wait, shouldn't it say on all have, anyways, on some have compassion, making a distinction or a difference in the King James Version. In other words, through the outpour of compassion and goodness, you win some to Jesus. Amen. That's a good thing. But others save with what? Fear. Huh. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Are there certain passages in the Bible that can cause you to experience fear? Yeah, of course. I think of Revelation chapter uh, 14, for example. It talks about how the everlasting gospel is going to go to the, all the world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But in the same breath, in the same passage, it talks about a group of people that are going to be experiencing fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I remember when I was studying the Bible for the first time with an individual. His name is Mikey. Uh, Mikey and... Um, I remember we are at his house watching Final Events, one of the old Final Events DVDs. It's like the blue one. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, anyways. And, and I was a coal porter. We used to sell that. And we, the line said, great special effects. I remember I watched it, and I was like, eh, we might be fudging that one a little bit. But I remember we were watching it, and I know a lot of people feel like it's kind of a cheesy movie. But if you remember toward the end of the movie, there's a scene where there's New Jerusalem sitting in the plane, and there's the resurrection of the wicked. And there's a big burly guy outside the gate, and he's a biker. He's wearing, like, leather. He's, like, this big burly guy, and he's, like, looking at the city. He's outside the city. Well, okay, I used to be, like, 400 pounds, you know, so I was a big, bigger guy, and I used to ride a bike. Actually, I was riding a motorcycle at the time. And I remember when I saw that movie. This is, like, my maybe second week reading the Bible. I'm, like, brand new to this still, just giving the Bible a chance. I remember I saw that, and I had this healthy dose of fear where I realized the reality that there is a judgment. I realized the reality that I deserve to be outside that city because of the life that I have lived. I recognized that I was an enemy of God 
And aside from him, that's where I would be. I, I had this like deep moment watching that movie. But guess what that led me to? The mercy of God. See, you don't save by fear alone, but fear leads you to say, wait, this is it? This is reality? This is what I'm going to experience? But actually one took your place. See, fear leads to God's mercy. But it's still there. And so there are some stories in the Bible that actually give a healthy, I, I like to call it a healthy dose of, of fear. Because you actually see the severity of God. At the end of the day, God means business. Amen? God means business. He means what he, he, means what he says. It wasn't for no reason he kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. God is a very serious God. He's a very loving, compassionate, merciful, benevolent God. Amen? But he's a very serious God. And there is a severity to his character because he is justice. But that severity should lead you to his mercy. It leads you back to his goodness. This is why Paul said, back to that verse, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Notice how he words this. On those who fell, what? Notice he puts severity on a different group, doesn't he? He's saying, look, consider both goodness and severity. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, what? Goodness. In other words, yeah, they're, they're both there, but we really should think more about the goodness and less about the severity because severity should only lead you back to God's goodness. Does that make sense? But sometimes we read passages in the Bible and we're like, God, I just don't see your character. It just seems so intense. Well, that is his character. It's his severity that you might be looking at. The seven last plagues are pretty severe, aren't they? They are very severe. The seven trumpets are very severe, but they also point to God's goodness and his benevolence. And you can ask me about that. I don't have time to talk about the trumpets or the plagues right now, but they're beautiful. They're actually precious Bible studies. So there are two aspects of God's character, and we need to keep this in mind. If, for your notes, if anyone's taking notes, you can write down Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Your Sabbath afternoon homework, I want you to look at this passage and count how many references there are to God's goodness versus how many references there are to his severity and see which one outweighs which one. So Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that's just for you to contemplate um, and to look at, and I want you to see and answer the question, what should you think more about, goodness or severity? So this is, I believe, the intention of Scripture. This is the intention of the Bible. Uh, to review, the purpose of the Bible is to know and experience God. To genuinely have an experience with God. Because to experience Him, again, starts a whole chain of events that will change your Christian life. Radically change your Christian experience. But it starts with actually experiencing Him. And we can only experience Him clearly, distinctly, as we spend time in His Word. And as you do this, it will have a major impact on your day-to-day -day life because it will affect your trust in God and the experience you have with this word and the peace that comes through it. But keep in mind, God has both goodness and severity, and we should be mindful of both of these. And when you find severity in a story as it relates to you, let it lead you to his goodness. Don't stop at the severity and end it. don't end your study there. <laughs> Ask yourself, how does this lead me back to his mercy and his goodness? It does every time, I promise you. It does, but you have to find that. Ask him. How does this fit with the big picture of us at the end of time? I believe, and we're going to be talking about that this, this, this afternoon, I believe that when you have this in mind, 
It impacts your understanding of your 28 fundamental beliefs. It impacts how you share them. And it impacts the reception and experience of those who you give Bible studies to. Because at the end of the day, how you view God is how you relate to others. And when you teach about God, it's the, the way you view God is how you will present him to others. True? And I believe when understood this way, when we study the Bible this way, that our 28 fundamental beliefs all become beautiful. Yes, the state of the dead is beautiful. Amen? It's not just right. It's beautiful. It fits in the plan of salvation. It reveals God's character. And we'll be talking about that doctrine this afternoon in part. We're talking about a few different doctrines this afternoon and talking about how this understanding of knowing God and experiencing God should be understood in the context of our fundamental beliefs and our view of Bible prophecy, like Daniel and Revelation. So we'll be talking about that this afternoon. I want to end with this quote for you to consider and chew on. It's a quote to a man by the name of Moses Hole, who was a great apologist in the pioneer times in the Millerite movement. Uh, so I'll read it, and I want you just to follow along and to chew on it, because I think it really summarizes the whole concept of this message. Brother Hole, God wants you to come nearer to Him, where you can take hold of His strength. By living faith, claim His salvation, and be a strong man. If you were a devotional godly man in the pulpit and out, a mighty influence would attend your preaching. You do not closely search your own heart. You have studied many works to make your discourses thorough, able, and pleasing. But you have neglected the greatest and most necessary study, the study of yourself. A thorough knowledge of yourself, meditation, and prayer have come in as secondary things. Your success as a minister depends upon you keeping your own hearts. Here it is. You will receive, what's that key phrase? More strength. How many of you want more strength? You will receive, notice this, more strength by spending one hour. How long? One hour each day in meditation. Pause right there. By the word meditation, that is not the Eastern meditation of emptying oneself. It is the biblical meditation of bringing a knowledge of God into your mind and dwelling upon that knowledge of God. Amen. Continuing, you will receive more strength by spending one hour each day in meditation and in mourning over your failings and heart corruptions and pleading for God's pardoning love and the insurance of sins forgiven. Do you see all three aspects in there? Do you see the severity of God, the justice of God, the laws of God, which, yes, cause us to mourn and fail over our shortcomings and our corruptions, but that it should lead to God's pardoning love every time? So you'll gain more strength from doing this on a daily basis for one hour than you would by spending many hours and days in studying the most able authors and making yourself acquainted with every objection to our faith and with the most powerful evidences in its favor. That's powerful. You will get more strength, more of a spiritual benefit and blessing by simply getting to know God, thinking about Him, mourning over your contrast of him and claiming his love than you would if you spent multiple days becoming the best apologist in the Seventh-day Adventist church. That says a lot, doesn't it? So the question is, how many of you will approach the Bible differently? Not to win a debate, not to show that you're right, 
not to show who's wrong, and not just to know about God, but to actually bring it into a practical experience in the life. How many of you want to have that experience? Amen? It's up to you. You can have it. Guaranteed. Promise you. And you'll never have another dry devotional experience again. I promise. Because every passage of Scripture will be a revelation of an experience that God is waiting for you to have. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to study your word. Thank you for helping us with the technical difficulties. That's just an evidence to me that Satan really did not want this message to come out. And so I thank you that you helped us through that. And I pray that everyone here would have heard something that they needed to hear um, to receive what you intended for us, Lord. We want to know you. We want to experience you. And I know that we've talk, we talk about Jesus is at the center of Scripture, Jesus is at the center of doctrines. But what does that look like in a data experience? How does Bible meet reality in my life when I go to school, when I go to work, when I interact with my family and my friends, and yes, even my enemies? Uh, what does it practically look like? I pray that you would continue to give us personal revelations of that and help us to take the Scriptures and to bring them into us, to actually eat the flesh and drink the blood instead of just becoming... Uh, academic Christians. Help us to this end is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.